Good morning, and welcome you all to Village Bible Church. I was going to do some impersonations of famous pastors, but I have decided to forego that, because uh, I was really afraid you wouldn't get any of them. So I have not mastered uh, Alistair Beggs, um, Scottish Brogue, and so I'm working on that, and someday I may try that again with you all. So first, I would like to thank, first of all, thank you uh, for being patient with me as I come up and preach uh, for the first time. Um, Someone, a friend asked me recently, well, how long have you been preparing? And um, I didn't give the snappy answer when he asked me, but as I thought about it this morning, it's 61 years. (laughs) So this is either going to be like the greatest sermon you have ever heard. Or something else. So I do want to thank Pastor Ron Johnson, our senior pastor, uh, for asking me to preach today. This is simultaneously a huge honor and uh, yet (laughs) enormously terrifying. Uh, It's hard to explain this. Uh, I am humbled at his confidence in me to, quote, fill in for he and Pastor Andrew as they are both away um, and in their absence. In uh, preparing for this today... I realized we are really underpaying our pastors. We, I almost thought about doing a voice vote to triple their pay. Uh, I'm afraid, though, since I'm an elder, it might like actually be official, and so I can't do that. So it has been quite a struggle uh, to choose a topic, as I beseech the Lord for exactly the right message uh, that is most needed for the church today and uh, the church in general and here at Village. The message that has emerged is twofold, and you see it behind me, trust and obey. Uh, It may not sound like the most complex subject, uh, but trust me, I will try and make it as complex as possible. (laughs) Given all the negative news uh, that we hear now, I almost said daily, but on a moment-by-moment basis, the things that are in today's headlines and the runaway decline of uh, the American culture, I believe that many Christians really need reassurance to trust God uh, that he is still in control. And now, um, more than ever, we need to reexamine our walks with the Lord and, if needed, reengage in his work uh, and in obedience to his word. You know, the last, uh, I won't say how long I've had to prepare, 61 years, but in the last couple of weeks, it has been really purifying um, as I am preparing to speak to you all because it's a really heavy burden. And I realize what our pastors must go through, and they do this every week. Uh, To them, you know, we all think it's really natural for them. It's not. And there is a spiritual battle that happens. And I encountered it, uh, even though they have special training and they have theological degrees, uh, they still struggle. And so I would encourage us to to honor them. Scripture says that they do double honor. And so we owe that to them this morning. So let's get started. Last April, um, I, along with my extended family, had the opportunity to attend my nephew's graduation from Cal Baptist University. Uh, Now, about this time, there were a lot of negative stories uh, in the news cycle that threatened religious freedom, and they were really affecting me, but I didn't realize how deeply until this moment. Um, Near the beginning of the ceremony, a local ROTC honor guard uh, solemnly presented the American flag to the audience, and then silently saluted it with the kind of customary pomp that our flag deserves. Suddenly and completely without notice, I became very emotional 
and tears just flowed down my face. And uh, one of my daughters was sitting next to me, and she leaned over and said, Dad, are, are you okay? And I was just very choked up, and I whispered to her that I was very afraid for her future and for her entire generation's future. So let me ask you a few questions. This is the audience participation portion of our, our message today. So if any of these things apply to you, just raise your hand. So are you worried about the decline of America and its culture? Just raise your hand, okay? How many of you are sick of the constant loss of civility in our culture and the genuine loss of freedoms, both legal and religious, in America today? Okay? Do these losses, these affronts to your freedom and personal life ever make you angry? It's okay. We're in church. You can admit it. <laughs> Do you sometimes feel powerless to change the pace and direction of the culture's imposition of filth on you and on the people around you? <laughs> so what I've noticed recently is that many believers, myself included, uh, seem to vacillate between one of three common themes uh, in our response to the culture's decline. You can see them on the screen, I believe, behind me, yes? Worry, anger, and helplessness. And so I can see I am in great company with you all, and so we are going to address that today. So why do we often respond this way? Why do we have anger and worry and feel helpless? Well, I believe one reason, uh, certainly, is that Satan is using a constant barrage of bad news to keep believers preoccupied. And thus, uh, he keeps us discouraged and defensive. Let me say that again. I think that Satan just inundates us with bad news, and it seems like the bad news just is at an accelerating pace, right? We, we hear things literally on a moment-by-moment basis. And with the instant access to media via smartphones in particular, but computers, radio, and television, our minds are continually engaged in seeing and hearing all the bad news. Now, this is unprecedented. You know, when I was growing up, the bad news came out once a day in a newspaper uh, and maybe on the nighttime news. But now it is every minute of the day. So finally we have 24-7 bad news. And so that's what we've accomplished in my lifetime. So let me ask you some new questions that really do deserve our fullest attention. First question is, is Jesus afraid of the future? And this is, in, this is a serious question. Is Jesus afraid of the future? What's the answer? No. The correct answer is Jesus is not afraid of the future. But now let me ask you, why is that? Why is Jesus not afraid of the future? And you can give me your responses. He what? He wrote it. That's right. He's seen the future. He knows the future. He lives outside of time. He's in command of the future. He has a plan for our future. And by the way, that plan involves you and me. So he's not afraid of the future. Uh, I want to take a look also and just refresh our memories of what the mission of Jesus was when he was here on earth. What was his mission when he came to earth uh, and had his ministry here? Luke reveals it when he describes the situation with Zacchaeus and the discussion that follows. Great story. Jesus said, quote, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's in Luke 19.10. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That was his main objective. That was his mission. Now, I want to point out something. This is uh, the, in the Jim Hall version of the Bible. 
Notice that Jesus did not come to save the world's culture. Now, that might sound really strange to us, especially as American Christians, but Jesus didn't come to save our culture. He also didn't come to save the whales. He didn't come to save the earth from global warming. He didn't even come to save America from socialism, Hillary, or Donald. Jesus came to save people. The people that we work with, our neighbors, the folks who work at the grocery store, our classmates, and even members of our own families. He came to save you, and he came to save me. Unfortunately, I think it is too easy for many of us to lose focus on Jesus' primary mission, and then we get discouraged as we focus on the crumbling culture around us. We focus on the culture and not on Christ, and of course, when we do that, naturally we become discouraged. So let's see what the vision Jesus had for redeeming the world and its culture. It's really pretty straightforward. And this is nothing new, but I feel strongly that we need to be reminded of this. First, redeem the lost. This is Jesus' vision. Second, transform their hearts to live exemplary lives that are devoted to God and to his word. And then third, use the testimony of these everyday people's lives to change everything. So the text that I've selected for today is in Mark 12, 13 through 17. You can follow along, and it is on the screen above you and uh, behind me. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. By the way, if I were Jesus at this point, I would have just stopped him and said, no, you don't. You don't believe what you just said. But Jesus doesn't, and he goes on. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Seems like a pretty basic question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they answered, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. In fact, Luke's version of the same passage uh, says that they were silenced. So I can imagine them uh, coming in this big crowd. This is my vision of what happened. They come to him, it's a big crowd, Jesus is teaching, and they push their way to the front, and they make a pretty big show of the fact that they're going to ask him a question. And then they ask him this question, and he absolutely silences them. And now there's no place for them to go. I mean, they are just shut down and humiliated. So the background to the question, at first reading, the main question seems to be, pay the poll tax or not? Now, I had to think about this because as an American Christian, when we live in a culture where paying taxes to our own elected government, that's the operative word here, is normal. We pay taxes. We don't like it, but it's not a big deal to us. We pay our taxes and we pay it to an elected government. The question that was raised then by the Herodians and the Pharisees to us, to our ears, sounds very non-controversial. But if you were a Jew living in first century of uh, Israel, occupied Israel, this was a white-hot 
long-running political issue. So let's take a look at the object lesson, uh, the thing. Oh, do we have a picture of the Daenerys? Yes, we do. <clears throat> okay. I was just testing to see if you were all paying attention. So the Daenerys is actually kind of the focal point, literally and figuratively, of, of this trap question that they have. So on one side of the silver Daenerys was a profile of Tiberius Caesar, and the Latin inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, uh, and it was written on the perimeter of the coin. So uh, Caesar assumed that he was uh, the son of a divine being, making him the son of God. Now, how ironic. The Pharisees, who have been waiting for the Messiah, pose a trap question to the real Messiah, and they ask a question about a coin, about a man who thinks he's son of God. Anyhow, so uh, the coin was worth roughly a day's wage. And we kind of bypass that, but think about it. How many of you are carrying a coin worth about $64 with you? So imagine in today's currency, eight hours a day, roughly $8 an hour if, if you're getting minimum wage, $64. So a denarius wasn't exactly something you carried around. And that's probably the reason why Jesus didn't have one. And he had to ask for someone to go get it. History shows us how much, however, the Jews hated the Romans. The Jews hated their offensive currency, the Romans' offensive currency. That is the focal point of this little interlude. They hated their government, and they hated more than anything the Roman army that was occupying the entire nation of Israel. Now, again, we can't imagine what this is like because we live in a free country. But let's try this. Imagine with me if ISIS took over the United States and they took over um, our government and they had an overwhelmingly powerful army that was not to be resisted. There was no way we could fight it. And then imagine, on top of this, they made us pay taxes to a false government, a foreign government, and then they, they, paid a, they made us pay this one extra tax to pay for the occupying army that was in our country illegally. How would you feel about that? We would hate it. We would revolt. And actually, the Jews, uh, on several occasions, um, because of this tax, tried to revolt or actually did revolt later on in the first century. So the idea of obeying a truly adversarial pagan government is hard for us to really understand. The Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus a highly engineered question that had no possible good answer as far as they were concerned. They thought that they had him, and they thought that we can now trap Jesus publicly and humiliate him. And they asked him a question that's kind of like the old, have you stopped beating your wife question, right? A question that has no proper answer. And the idea is to, to embarrass the respondent. But more than the embarrassment, the question they asked was designed to elicit a, a response that would either ruin Jesus' reputation and popularity with his Jewish followers. So if he said, pay the poll tax, it would ruin his popularity. Or mark him publicly as a rebel against Rome if he said, don't pay the tax. So either way, they had Jesus, or at least that's how they thought. So let's think, how did Jesus answer? And I want to point something out here. We, we saw the words that he used. 
But think in terms of how he answered. He answered them by loving his enemies. I don't think I would have been nearly as generous as Jesus. In fact, I'm confident I wouldn't have been. And take a look at this. Jesus sees right through their false flattery and hypocrisy, and yet he still gives them a serious answer. Now, you may be dealing with someone at work or a friend who asks you questions that you know are really just made to goad you, right? They're not sincere questions. And yet Jesus, if we follow his model, he gives them a serious answer. His answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It not only snuffs out their attempt to trap him, but he establishes three profoundly significant uh, truths, and we will cover those truths now. Uh, First one is Caesar is not God. Second one is God's people are to be model citizens of human government, even pagan governments. And thirdly, since everything belongs to God, God's people are to fully trust him and his word. So let's unpack those quickly. First one, Caesar is not God. Now, this may have been obvious to you, but as I read it, I realized Jesus' answer contains two separate but very unequal subjects, Caesar and God. And just by answering in this two-part way, he completely took on the notion that Caesar was God. Um, And yet it's ironic they. His listeners were so shell-shocked by his answer that that just went right over their heads. Two, God's people are to be model citizens of human government, even pagan governments. And this one's really hard to comprehend. But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus' command to obey the government only makes sense when we consider that it is God himself who establishes government. Later on in his life, Jesus tells Pilate at his trial, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Uh, In some of Paul's letters, he supports this concept, and he even tells us to obey the government. And imagine this, pray for its leaders. So think about the leadership of Rome. Uh, Later, after this period of time, there was Nero, uh, the emperor who, uh, for fun, he'd have these garden parties at night. And part of what he did is um, because it was there was no electricity, they needed artificial lighting. And so among all the torches and everything else, he would make these little baskets and put a Christian in the basket and cover them with tar and then set them on fire so that the burning Christian would provide light to his guests. Okay, And so this is the kind of government that Jesus is saying you need to obey. Look at the cultural setting into which the gospel was introduced by God, the thoroughly pagan Roman culture. Now listen to this. A pluralistic, sex-obsessed, materialistic society. Does any of that sound familiar so far? Ruled by an authoritarian government whose leader was a delusional egomaniac who fancied himself to be a god. Yet, within a relatively short period of time, Christians were having a huge impact on Roman rulers on the army, remember the reference uh, Paul gives to the whole Praetorian Guard, and on the culture itself. The stronger the persecution, the greater the influence Christ's love had on Rome's leaders and on its citizens. Believers' lives, and this is really the, the important takeaway, believers' lives had so much impact on Rome and on the government and on its culture that by 313 A.D., Emperor Constantine was said to have become a Christian, But something we do know for certain in history is that he declared tolerance for Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. 
So Christians had a major impact on the culture. Even a wicked, thoroughly evil culture like the Roman culture. The third item, since everything belongs to God, God's people are to fully trust him and his word. During Jesus' object lesson with the denarius, he taught that the image on the coin referred back to its owner. In this case, it was Caesar. The government that made the coin put Caesar's image on it and then circulated that image in the whole world. And the government could at any time recall that coin. But then Jesus makes what seems to be a leap of logic that only the Jews in the audience would immediately understand, especially these Pharisees, when he says, and render to God the things that are God's. Well, what did Jesus mean by that? Genesis 1.27 gives us the answer. It says uh, that we bear God's image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So get this. The coin had the image of Caesar. And Jesus says, it belongs to Caesar. And then he's looking right at the Pharisees because they're right in front of him in my imagination. And he points to them and he says, essentially, whose image do you bear? And the right answer was God's image. And therefore, in the same way that the coin belonged to the government, the Roman government, the people in front of him, all people, because we're all image bearers, are God's people and they are his property, and he can do with them whatever he wants. So we belong uh, to God. So let's take a quick look again uh, at the vision of Jesus. We're just going to recap this. Redeem the lost, transform their hearts, and use the testimony of everyday people's lives to change everything. Now the big question, however, is that last part. Which believers' lives will God use to bring about his purposes? Does he just use the really talented ones? Uh, The answer is God's plan is to use all of us to change the culture. However, as Americans, we tend to think through the filter of exceptionalism, right? You have to be really great at something uh, to really count. We think that to be a successful, unquote, unquote, Christian, we have to have an exceptional talent. And this is just not the case. Let me ask a question to prove this point. So uh, by show of hands, how many of you in this auditorium um, are a world-class or have the talent to be a world-class orator, uh, athlete, or vocalist? Let me just see your hands. Okay. For the record, none of you raised your hands. All right? And that's not surprising because we're a pretty small group. And to be that exceptional, to be world-class at anything, means that you're one in a million. Right? And our congregation isn't that large. But let's ask it a different way. How many believers in this room have a spiritual gift from God? Okay. That's the right answer. All of you. We all have a spiritual gift that has been given to us by the Lord. And it is our job to find out what that gift is uh, and to use it to his glory and to change the culture. Now, I'm going to ask you to imagine something. Imagine if every believer used his or her gift from God every day. What would the world look like if that were true? And it's my hypothesis that we don't. We get distracted, we get busy at work, uh, we have children, and that sort of thing. Imagine the impact that we could have if each of us would just use the one gift that God has given to us. Now, here's the situation I just want you to imagine. Two Christian women 
uh, see a need and befriend an elderly believer who is in declining health. Soon they begin to take care of her, even staying the night at her house at times to take care of her. The woman is so touched by their kindness, uh, care, and generous giving of themselves that she asks the women to distribute her belongings from her estate in a way that would be a blessing to others and honor the Lord after her death. So after she passes away, the two women discover a painting in the house that has very little value to them personally, as it is an old portrait of a relative of the deceased woman's husband from 200 years ago. However, the women soon learn that the painting is practically priceless to a major Christian organization. The women donate the painting to the organization and embark on an amazing journey, experiencing God's sovereignty, provision, and encouragement. Now, doesn't that sound like a great screenplay for a Christian movie? Uh, Now imagine if this really happened, because it really did. It happened to two people here in our congregation at Village Bible Church. And so if you will, give me a moment uh, and welcome up Kathleen Nagy. Kathy, if you'll join me on stage and give her a round of applause. You can sit there. So we're just going to have a quick interview, sorry, for folks sitting there, uh, so that Kathy doesn't have to speak up at the lectern by herself. It was scary enough for me to get up here, but she's chosen to get up here with me, which is probably scarier. Uh, So let's just get started. Kathy, let me ask you a couple questions. So first, is it fair to say that none of what you're about to share with us came about because of some exceptional quality or ability on the part of you or Ruth? Oh, that's very true. This experience was completely God-ordained, and it was orchestrated by the Lord. So you're not like a world-class athlete, Uh, or you're not a billionaire (laughs) or anything? No. Okay. All right. Good. So recently, you and Ruth, your sister-in-law, attended the Bicentennial uh, Gala of American Bible Society in Philadelphia. Tell us briefly how that happened. Um, I hope you don't mind if I read. (laughs) Um, This is a story of real providence and the amazing hat of God on Ruth's in my life. Um, A dear friend of ours had passed away, and we had been given the responsibility to give her things to charity. Most of the things we gave to the sheepfold, but she had a very large and unusual portrait that she had been kept in her closet for about 50 years. It was a painting of a famous relative of her late husband's. The portrait was of Elias Boudinot, who was the founder and the first president of the American Bible Society. When the American Bible Society heard that we desired to notate the portrait, they made arrangements to have it shipped to them in Philadelphia, and they were so impressed that his portrait had been found and given to them in time for the bicentennial gala that they invited Ruth and I to attend and also extended us an invitation to the president's gathering. So this was all just a big mistake, just an accident. <laughs> That's what we thought. <laughs> okay. So what happened at the gala? Um, the gala was a gathering of about a thousand people from about 200 different countries. There were missionaries, Bible distributors, donators, both small and large, and representatives of various Bible translators and ministry organizations were all invited. The American Bible Society also hosted the International Bible Societies at the same time in Philadelphia. So many of the heads from these different international organizations were also invited. We heard from Catholic cardinals from Africa, read a letter of encouragement from the Pope, a drama presentation about the last 200 years of ABS, 
And we had worship led by Matt Maurer and an eloquent address from Roy Peterson, who is the president of ABS. So you're saying about 1,000 people yes. from 200 countries? Yes. Okay. Was one of those countries Texas? <laughs> yes, there were. Okay. All right. Tim, did you hear that? Okay, so what highlights from the evening do you want to share with the Village Bible Church family? Um, the, the history of America and how it's intertwined with the Bible is really pro- quite profound. Mm. Um, but the future goals and the work God is doing today um, in the world to make his word and the gospel known to the nations, it's even more astounding. So you mentioned to me that there was a theme for the evening and even perhaps for the ABS itself. Yes, um, they had very large letters in the back, um, uh, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Mm. What a great message. What was the message or themes that ABS conveyed as their focus uh, going forward from this point on? There were three. Um, it was transforming America, trauma and healing, and translation. So why don't you take a second and elaborate on those themes for us? Uh, Transforming America is dealing with the accessibility of the Bible through phone apps, study guides, and even helping Christians become more Bible literate because that number has been going down over the last few years. They have designed the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center to be built in Philadelphia on the Mall to show Americans' dependency on God and Scripture as foundational to our American history. Um, They will have interactive displays for the young, museum pieces, such as the first Gutenberg Bible and Helen Keller's Braille Bible. ABS um, has not only translated the Bible into the first Native American language, which was Cherokee, but they also made and gave Helen Keller her first Braille Bible. And when she wore it out um, from use, she donated it back to American Bible Society. Um, There will be links uh, to a map. of the world and the availability of the Bible translations in uh, people's uh, groups' heart language mm. uh, through a website called illuminations.bible. Great. Tell us a little bit about trauma and healing, the second theme. Trauma and healing uh, comes alongside people from all over the world who have experienced horrific persecution and suffering, some who are living in refugee camps all the way to others who are victims of abuse, human sex trafficking in our own inner cities. The theory behind this ministry is that people cannot hear about the love of God when they feel like God has deserted them in their hour of need. In order to hear of God's love, they need to see love and be loved. And as they begin to be healed through the power of God's love, through the counselors and provision and care, they begin to be open to the Lord himself and to hearing the gospel. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Okay, tell us about translation. Translation is a means of getting God's word into the hands and the hearts of all people, fulfilling the great commission Mm -hmm. of Jesus and hastening the Lord's return. This is now being done in great speed as different ministries are now working together to bring this about. I think of all the things you told me, that was one of the most amazing parts, is that Mm -hmm. all these ministries that have been working independently are now working together and the, the translation work is going much faster because of it. Yes. Um, all right. So after the gala, you attended three days of teaching, worship, and testimony. What in particular was um, had the greatest impact on you and on Ruth? Uh, for me, it was the story of Table 71. 
Um, several years ago, Billy Graham asked to gather 600 strategists representing many of the great uh, Christian organizations of our time. Um, it was um, to talk about finishing the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. And they were seated at 75 tables. There was uh, Wycliffe, YWAM, Crew, Walk Through the Bible. You would have known the list. Uh, it was very um, relevant to us. And participated, they, these all participated in this summit. At the conclusion, there was this deep moving of the Holy Spirit in the room, and the tables were asked to look at the list of unreached people groups and commit to reaching a group or groups as they were impressed by the Spirit. Um, these men and women moved to tears, went forward with heavy hearts, promising to bring Bibles to their particular group that they committed to. And when almost every table had gone forward, there were still hundreds of people groups with no translators or organization that had felt led to reach them. Then um, the men at table 71 felt a deep conviction by the Spirit to accept all the other people groups. They prayed together and agreed. It was what the Lord wanted them to do. So they adopted all of the rest. Um, as part of the body of Christ, they felt like they couldn't do anything less. And they became very practical. They thought, okay, what do we need to do to reach these people? And they needed Bibles in the heart language of the people. So they called over Roy Peterson, who at the time was then president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. He also felt this a burden and calling. And he asked, uh, he said to count him in. And then they went around to each of the tables and selected people that the Lord had called on them and asked them um, if they would like to be a part and for the goal of reaching all the people in the world for the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how many people are we talking about in the world today who do not have any scripture? One billion. A billion people. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's approximately 1,800 languages still have no Bible or Bible portion. 1,800 languages. Right. Uh, does ABS have any idea how long it will take uh, to do that much translation work? Yes, this was really miraculous to hear this. Um, because of the new collaboration amongst the various ministries and the advancement in technology, they believe it can be accomplished by the year 2025 in our lifetime. So less than 10 years from now. Yes. That's pretty amazing. Thank you, Kathy, mm -hmm. for being brave enough to come up and share <laughs> that with us and for blessing us. This was very encouraging. Thank, Thank you. you. Give her a hand, please. So as we can see, although we are confronted daily with bad news, what we don't see is the good news, literally and figuratively speaking, that Jesus is um, at work in the world today. So let's wrap this up. As my friend Terry often says at the end of his Sunday school class, quote, so what is the therefore from what we heard today, unquote? Well, I've got three things on my list. Maybe you have more. One is don't allow the bad news to distract us. It just kills our spirit. And so if you find that you are a recovering news junkie like I am, uh, that you need to meter the amount of news you take in, then control it uh, so that you don't get depressed and discouraged by it. Two is that the uh, culture becomes more hostile to Christian faith. I'm convinced it's time for everyday believers, us, to step up and be all in with Jesus. This isn't a time for hesitation. This isn't a time for holding back. It is very clear that this is a time 
for us to be fully committed uh, to the Lord and to his, his work. The third thing is, despite clear evidence of the decline of Western culture, what we don't see uh, is the battle in the spiritual realm where the gospel is advancing at an ever-increasing rate and God is accruing glory to himself. The message that Kathy brought to us is absolutely stunning. Uh, 1,800 language translations in less than 10 years is just phenomenal. So I want to leave you with this thought. When my grandfather Zinter was in the last few days of his life, I went to visit with him and to pray uh, together. At the end of that prayer time, I saw in his eyes a little twinkle and he had a smile all across his face. And he said to me, Jimmy, I can't wait uh, to see my Lord and to see Helen, his wife, again. So think about that. He's at, in the final days of his life, and he cannot wait to see the Lord. Talk about irony. I went there to be an encouragement to him. I went there to be... Um, a support and to reassure him. But his testimony of trust in the face of imminent death was the most powerful evidence of the gospel's truth I think I've ever witnessed. So what's the learning from that? If we have, an, I mean, you either have a testimony of truth coming out of your life or you don't. A testimony of trust, I should say. We either trust the Lord or we don't. You know, right now the culture hates a binary decision. Right, because they want all the choices in between. But I'm going to tell you, there is, you're either in or you're out. You either are trusting the Lord or you're not. And that shows in our lives. And the thing that is most powerful isn't our words. It isn't the money that we give to any uh, church or foundation. It's the, the witness and the testimony of our lives. Do people see us actually trusting the Lord? And when they see that, they know it's genuine. You can't fake trust. You know, when you're on your deathbed, it's you and the Lord. And it's going to be very clear that it was either a trusting relationship or it's not. Um, when it's there, when trust is there and it's a part of your testimony, the world cannot deny it. It's one of those things that there's no answer to. You, there's no rebuttal when Christians live a life that is marked by trust. May God himself grant all of us the courage, grace, and the words to speak as we have opportunity to impact the people around us. Uh, please join me in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we uh, just come before you and we are astounded when we learn of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing throughout the world to advance the gospel. Father, we're so grateful. We know that you are at work and that you will not be deterred from your uh, plan of salvation, you are not frightened. You know exactly how this all goes, and you see the end from the beginning. Father, we're, we're just humbled because of your love for us. And Father, we ask today that we would have lives that would be marked by a testimony of trust, that people that we are around on a daily basis would see that trust um, in you, in our lives, and that they would be changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.